hurting, we just remind you that the last two times I spoke, Pastor Job was the primary speaker, teacher on Sunday morning. The last two times I spoke, I spoke out of the Gospel of Mark. One time we looked at the uh, paralytic. So remember the four men who lowered the paralyzed man down through the roof? We looked at that scene. And then we went toward the end of Jesus' healing ministry, where he healed blind Bartimaeus. And I spoke of something at that time, and I want to remind you this morning, and we've already said it. When we look at these miracles, it's not about the miracle. It's not about the men or the women involved, though they're great. But they're always about Jesus. We look at the story of the, the man who was let down through the roof. As I said back then, the heroes in this story are not the four men, though they went to great extremes to lower the man down to Jesus. The hero is always Jesus. It's always about him. And the two things that we must always keep in mind when we look at these Stories, whether they're the teachings of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus, as Kurt has already said, it's the fact that Jesus is sovereign. He has the authority and the power to do anything. He can calm the sea. He can walk on water. He can raise the dead. He can heal people by the thousands. He has that power and that authority. Remember, Jesus is both God and man, isn't he? And being God, being deity, he has the sovereign authority and power to do these things. But we must also see the humanity of Jesus. And we're going to see that again this morning. And the most important thing, I think, that we can draw out of these little scenes, these little vignettes in the ministry of Jesus is his compassion. Over and over again, we're told that Jesus was moved with compassion. He felt for people. God in the flesh, the sovereign one who can calm the sea. In the beginning was the Word, was, word was with God, and the Word was God. That's him. And here he has compassion. He takes pity upon people, and he, in mercy, he relieves their suffering. That's an amazing thing to see, is to remember that Jesus is merciful. He's not only filled with compassion, but compassion in action is mercy. And he is full of mercy. And at the conclusion, that's the conclusion of the whole message. Jesus is sovereign and compassionate. And that's always the point. We want to see Jesus. And this morning, this is what we want to look at. We want to see Jesus and what, what's going on in this scene. And it's very interesting. And we enjoy looking at the details, don't we? Because we all love a good story. The Bible is a book of stories. God created us to enjoy a story. We enjoy the story, but we must see Jesus. And so, as I read these verses, as we go through these verses, be looking at Jesus and what he's doing. Because the rest of the details only serve to show us Jesus. We're going to begin in verse 31, and we're going to look at the healing of a deaf man. A deaf man who cannot speak. I just thought of this last night, that the last miracle we looked at was the healing of the blind man, and now we're looking at the healing of a deaf man. And these kinds of things are of particular interest to to our family because, you know, our daughter is uh, legally blind and deaf. 
And it's, it's encouraging to see the compassion of Jesus, knowing that one day these things will be gone. As we read about in Isaiah, one day they'll just be gone. And the, the deaf will hear, the mute will sing, the blind will see, the lame will leap. Because one day the, the curse will be taken away from us. And it's encouraging as we look at these stories to think of those kinds of things too. So this is a story of a deaf man. Let me just read it. It's very brief. It begins at verse 31 and goes through verse 37. And then we'll go back over the story in some detail. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. A very touching story. Very interesting, some of the details of what's going on, and I hope to be able to explain those for you. So I'm just going to break it down very, very simply, though there are details under each one of these, but we have the, the location for the miracle. We have the location. We could call this the setting, but it's the location. Mark um, tells us where this is happening and how Jesus got here. So it's all about the location. And then there's the miracle itself. And then finally at the end, just a few applications. So let's look at verse 31 and the location. Mark writes, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, that might not seem very important or interesting, but for those who look at it closely, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense. Let me, let me try to show you why. I'm just going to ask you to envision a map, okay? There's a map here, an air map. And on this map, to your left, which would be the west, is the Mediterranean Sea, okay? And down here at the bottom, to the east of the Mediterranean Sea, toward the bottom of the map, is Judea. So down at the bottom of the map is Jerusalem and that whole area. And then as you travel north out of Judea, you go through uh, Samaria, and then you go up into Galilee. That's way to the north. Remember, Jesus spent most of his ministry, really, in Galilee among the Gentiles. And then you go north out of Galilee into Phoenicia. That's way to the north of our map, okay? Way up here to the north is Tyre. It's way up there on the coast. So there's Tyre way up here. Judea is way down here. Galilee is about here. And so in Galilee is the Sea of Galilee. And then to the right or to the east of the Sea of Galilee is Decapolis, the region called Decapolis. And it's, you know, if we're up here in Tyre, Judea is down here. Galilee is in here. The Sea of Galilee in Tyre would be over here to the east and south of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is up here at Tyre, right? He's going to go over here to Decapolis because that's where he's arrived. 
Now, it would make sense if you're going to go to Decapolis, you would head south out of Tyre. But he doesn't. It says he went to Sidon. Sidon is 25 more miles north. From 20, he gets up there in Sidon, and then he has to cross to the east over a mountain range. Goes over mountain range, crosses a major river, goes over a, a, like a, a mountain pass op that eventually opens up into the rolling hills. But even that is difficult. This whole trip is very difficult. Some say that from the time he left Galilee, it was probably six months before he arrived in Decapolis. Though he's walking. He's walking the entire way. So the question is, well, what, why is he doing this? What's he doing? Going from Galilee up to Tyre, up to Sidon, and then crossing over, because this is longer. He, he has to make like a big loop to get over the mountains and then come down. And he didn't come straight down. It, it indicates that he went down to Decapolis, but he went to the Sea of Galilee through Decapolis, which might indicate that he was, he'd gone down to the eastern part of Decapolis and then made his way to the Sea of Galilee. Decapolis, you, you, Deca means ten cities. It's a region with ten major cities. So Jesus has made his way from Galilee, this giant loop. What's he doing? This period in Jesus' life is often called the withdrawal ministry or the withdrawal period. Jesus is withdrawing from the crowds. Now, things are going to get stirred up as he goes, like in Tyre. But along the way, he is withdrawing himself and the 12 disciples, the apostles. He's withdrawing with them to make this long trip. And after he leaves, in fact, in Sidon, from the time he leaves Tyre, up in Sidon, and all the way over, there's no indication that he did anything. Now, he probably did. Remember John said if if you took all of the activities of Jesus and put them in books, the earth couldn't contain the books. But there's no indication that Jesus did anything. What's he doing? He's spending time alone with his disciples. Withdrawing from the crowds to be alone with the disciples. And remember, wherever Jesus goes, there's a crowd. And sometimes, most of the time, like here, he ordered them, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. There are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, Jesus knows if, if, the, if the word gets out more and more and more, and the crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger, he's, not gonna, he's gonna be hindered in accomplishing his intended purpose. Jesus, remember, is on his way to Jerusalem where he is going to die. And there is a specific time for that to happen. There was a day that was appointed by God for Jesus to die. And the more the people spread the word, the more dangerous it becomes. Because the Jews, from the very early days, the Jews hate him. They want to put him to death. They're plotting already. And Herod is, he doesn't like Jesus. So Herod, the Herodian, is, is after Jesus. The Jews are after Jesus. And so sometimes he says, now don't tell anybody this. But there's another reason, and this is what John MacArthur thinks the main reason is. This, this story of Jesus is not just about miracles. I don't want anybody to get the idea that that's why I'm here. So please don't tell anybody. Now what happens? They tell everybody. We'll see that here. It's almost humorous. Because that's not why I came. I came to offer myself as a ransom for many. I came to suffer and die. That's not why I'm here. So you can combine those two thoughts. 
It wasn't what he was all about, and it wasn't the time. So don't tell anybody. But in this period, Jesus has withdrawn from the crowds with his 12 disciples to teach them, fellowship with them, instruct them, encourage them, prepare them for when he will depart. And so that's why Jesus, it doesn't make sense, you know, someone suggests you to look at the map and you might think Jesus got lost. <laughs> no, this is a period of withdrawal. He's intentionally going the long way to avoid the crowds and to spend more time with the twelve. So Mark says, he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon. What? And to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. Well, why didn't he just go from Tyre to Decapolis? Because there's a, there's a reason behind it. So this is the location and how he gets to the location in the region of the Decapolis. And he doesn't identify any particular city. He's in the region. He's in the area of the Decapolis. And now we get to the details of the miracle itself. I often break these little stories down into like 10 or 12 points. I'm not going to do that today. We're going to look at the miracle, and let's look at the details of the miracle. Verse 32. And they, now we don't know who they are. They're not named. We don't know the name of the man. But they, probably because of the situation, it would make sense, they are probably his family members, or those who are very close to him. They, whoever they are, they brought to him a man. Now, brought to him, um, everyone indicates that in the Greek, there's really the idea they, they throw the man down. They, they sort of uh, rush him in, and almost shove him onto Jesus. So that's, keep in mind, there are, there are thousands of people here. Thousands of people coming to Jesus. Now, I thought Jesus hadn't done anything here. Jesus had not performed any miracles here, but if you go back just a little bit into chapter 5, remember he heals the man who's a demon living in the tombs? And at the end of that, he sends the man home to tell everybody what happened. And it says that he went to Decapolis. He went away and began to proclaim. That word proclaim is the words for declare, preach. He was preaching in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So throughout Decapolis, his name had spread. Now he comes down to Decapolis, and here's a throng of people. And there's a crowd, and they manage to get up close, and they push this man forward, as it were, onto Jesus. And some suggest that they threw him down to the ground to put him before Jesus. Now, this man is deaf. It says they brought a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. He's deaf. Why is he deaf? How long has he been deaf? We don't know. Some speculate that because he had a speech impediment, that might suggest that at one time he could speak, which might mean he could hear. So, you know, some people will say, well, probably at an early age, as a child, he contracted a disease and lost his hearing. And when you lose your hearing, you eventually lose your ability to speak clearly. It's speculation. I think rather, as some suggest, that this man was probably born deaf. He's deaf. Now, if you've ever heard a deaf person, you've been around deaf people, and you hear them, they're not only signing, but sometimes they're making sounds with their mouth, aren't they? It's unintelligible. You can't understand it. It sounds, you know, just rough ramblings to us. They're just making noises. They can't hear them, but they can feel it. And they're making noises along with their signing. 
And so this man had a speech impediment. And I'll come back to this a little bit later. Some translations say, I think the NIV says, he could hardly speak. He could, you could just barely make it out. But this man is deaf. Regardless of how long he's been deaf, he can't hear anything. These people, whoever they are, they go get him because he can't hear it. He, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. And they go get this man and bring him. There's a lot of chaos. There always is when Jesus is there. There's always pandemonium where Jesus is performing miracles. And they brought this man to Jesus who's deaf, who doesn't know what's going on. Now, maybe through some kind of sign language, they were able to communicate to him that there's somebody that can help you. And that's why they bring him, right? And he perhaps is reluctant, which might be the reason why they have to kind of throw him down. They have to bring him to Jesus. He doesn't know what's going on. He's deaf. So this man's world is silent. It's loud. It's noisy. There's clamoring. Uh, there's crying out. There's begging. And this man hears nothing. And if he had been deaf from birth, he had never heard anything. And I think this fits better with the story, with the miracle. He'd never heard his mother's voice. He'd never heard birds sing. He'd never heard water ripple. He'd never heard anything. And as far as speech, it's inaudible. You could barely call it speaking. And so that's the man, and that's his condition. He's deaf. And later on, the text uses the word mute. Not able to speak. And so, what did they do? The people who brought him, they begged him to lay his hand on him. Here we see the, the people, whoever they are, they brought the man forward to Jesus, and they are begging him, past tense, they begged him to do what? Just lay your hand on him. They know that there's healing power and that there are stories that all Jesus needs to do is touch you, put his hand upon you, and you'll be healed. Now, Jesus doesn't even need to do that, does he? He healed people from a distance. Didn't have to even be there. He doesn't have to touch them. Doesn't have to say anything. But he often does, like here. They begged the man, they begged Jesus to lay your hand on him, believing that Jesus could heal him. Like the four men who lowered the man through the roof, they know there's only one hope for this man. It's Jesus. And just like the four men who would not be stopped, they dug a hole through the roof with their bare hands. Remember that? They would not be stopped. And these men, they make their way to Jesus and they are begging him. Begging him. Please, put your hands upon him. Because they know that only Jesus can do this. And it does beg an application here. We who believe in Christ, we know that Christ is the hope of the world. And only Christ is the hope of the world. And we should be in the habit of bringing people to Jesus. And even begging the Father to save people. Because He alone can save. And when we need help, from the Father. We should be begging the Father to help us. And so these men, whoever they were, or family members, they begged him to just lay his hand on him. And now notice what Jesus does. Verse 33. 
And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears, he touched his tongue, he looked up to heaven and sighed. Here, in the midst of this scene, is a, a deaf man. He doesn't really know what's going on. He can't hear a thing. He can't say anything. Not anything intelligent. What does Jesus do? He goes and he takes the man and he pulls him aside. He takes him out of the crowd, doesn't he? We don't know how he did this. But he took him aside from the crowd privately. Jesus is going to deal with this man privately. Now, you know, of course, that especially back then, but it's been true through the ages, that the deaf, particularly, of all people, the deaf were considered... Um, almost monsters. There were cultures that would kill deaf babies. Even in Judaism, in Israel, they were accursed. They were accursed. The, the judgment of God was upon them. Perhaps there was some kind of a sin. And they were outcasts from society. And they were almost irredeemable people. And we know through the ages how the deaf and the mute have been institutionalized. It was true in that day. And so here's a man with that stigma on him. And Jesus takes him away from the crowd and deals with him privately. I think this points to the compassion of Jesus. His compassion, his kindness, his tenderness, his sensitivity. To take this man and deal with him privately. He now has Jesus' full attention. Jesus is focused on one person at that point, isn't he? One person and one person alone. That man. I wonder if that man had ever been treated like this. Now notice what Jesus does. I understand that what follows, there are what are called three couplets. And they're in the past tense. Having done this, Jesus did this. And there are three of these, past tense. And then Mark changes to the present tense for effect. So when it says that taking him aside, that's past tense, having taken him aside from the crowd, having in the past, taking him aside from the crowd privately, he did something. He put his fingers into his ears. Now, from this moment on, this is a kind of sign language. Jesus is speaking through signs to a deaf person. The first thing he does, he gets this man aside privately by himself, and you realize how close he had to be. And he reaches out, and he puts his fingers in his ears. And the word there is like he thrust them. He stuck them into his ears. Now remember, this is a real person. You know, this is a real day, and these things are happening in a real context. And somehow Jesus got him aside, and he's standing there, and Jesus comes up to him and sticks his fingers in his ears to probably indicate, I'm going to do something with your ears. And then he takes his fingers out. 
probably a sign. Symbolic to the man. It's your ears. That's the first couplet, past tense. Having taken him aside, he put his fingers into his ears. And then, after spitting, past tense, or having spit, now this sounds kind of rough, doesn't it? Jesus spit. It's not the only time that Jesus spit while doing a miracle. But Jesus spit. And it doesn't say, but the implication is that he probably spit on his fingers. Spit on his hand or spit on a couple of fingers. So having spit, what did he do? He touched his tongue. Now think about that. How does that happen? You know, did Jesus spit and then stick his fingers in his mouth? Did if you just think of a, what might be happening here, you know, Jesus put his fingers in his ears, and then he spit, and he may have said some, something, because he's able to what? He's able to put his fingers with that saliva on the man's tongue. The man has his own saliva, and Jesus is taking his saliva and touching the man's tongue to indicate I'm going to do something for your speech. So having spit, he then put his fingers on the man's tongue. There's one more couplet here. Looking up to heaven, again, Probably some sign language going on here. He sticks his fingers in his ears. Doing something with your ears. I'm touching your mouth. And now he looks to heaven. As if to say, this healing is going to come from heaven. This is going to come down where God is. Jesus often looked to heaven. And for him, he often looked to heaven, and he taught us to look to heaven, our Father who art in heaven, because that's where God is. And so it might look something like this. He pulls the man aside. That's what's going on. And having looked up to heaven, he then sighed. The word here in other places is translated, he groaned. But this would be a very heavy sigh. And a great sigh like this, commentators think, is to communicate emotion. You do that, you stick your fingers in the ears, you touch his tongue, you look to heaven. <sighs> you know what it's like, something happens and you sigh. Or something's going to happen, you go, <gasps> you're communicating something, aren't you? And possibly Jesus is trying to communicate through his own heavy-chested sigh. <sighs> there is a, a compassion in Jesus for this man. He sighs, an emotional sigh on his behalf. Now Mark switches to the present. Having done these things, now in the present, he said to him, Ephaphatha, which is 
I know some say it's Aramaic, some say it's Hebrew. I guess it's probably Aramaic. But either way, Mark tells us what it means. It means be opened. Be opened. And what happens? Immediately, his ears were opened. You see that in the next verse? He said, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened, and his ears were opened. Can you imagine the expression on the man's face when that happened? He's hearing things he'd never heard before. You've seen perhaps videos, you can find them on YouTube and other places of people, you know, hearing for the first time. And the, the, just the expression that comes over their face. This is just a little thing, but our own daughter, Barbie, when she was little, you know, she got her hearing aids. And that evening we were, all four of us were in the living room and we were just, you know, mar marveling over what she could hear. And at one point she said, and she's sitting on the floor, my um, Bev was sitting across from me. Grace was there. I don't remember where Grace was sitting, but Barbie said, what was that? What? Was that noise? There was, there was a noise. Well, we figured it out. Bev had taken something out of her purse and closed her purse, and it, there was a, a slight snap. What was that? That was a purse. Purses do that? That's the sound that it makes? She didn't know that. Can you imagine hearing everything for the first time? Wow. This really happened. These are not wooden people. They would have human responses. He's amazed. And not only were his ears opened, his tongue was released. Literally, the chain of his tongue was broken. Like a chain fell off of his tongue. It had been chained. It had been tied up. And he spoke plainly. Now, spoke plainly comes from a word from which we get our word orthopedics. It was fixed. It was broken and it was set straight. So what it would communicate then by using this word is that he spoke correctly. He'd, maybe he'd never done that in his whole life. He didn't have to go to therapy. Barbara went through therapy, speech therapy, right? It takes years for, for deaf people to be able to speak correctly. Some never can. This man didn't go to therapy. He'd never even heard words. <laughs> He'd never spoken words. And all of a sudden, he's speaking correctly. Can you imagine what's going on in his mind? What's going on in the mind, minds of those who brought him to Jesus? In the minds of those who are watching this now? And now something that's almost humorous. The man who wasn't able to speak is now able to speak and commanded not to speak. Right? Verse 34, and Jesus charged them, Jesus commanded them, and this is a very strong word, he commanded them to tell no one. John MacArthur humorously says, I'm kind of on the man's side here. Are you kidding me? I haven't been speaking all my life, and now you're telling me I can't speak? I can't tell anybody what's happened? But the more he charged them, Jesus just didn't say, now listen, don't tell anybody. He continued to say this. Don't tell anybody. Don't go sharing this story. Don't tell people. And he's telling everyone around him, don't say this. The more he said this, the more zealously they proclaimed it. It's out of control. I you know, Jesus would rather they not. Now, to the man who was, you know, the, the demon was cast out of them, and Jesus told him, go tell everybody. No one had 
ever been to Decapolis with the gospel. The, the demon who went to Decapolis was called, is referred to sometimes as the first evangelist or the first missionary to Decapolis. But here Jesus says, don't tell anybody for the reasons already stated. That's not why I came. I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression. And if this gets out more and more, it's going to become more difficult for me to get to Jerusalem because I have to get there on a certain day to die. But the more zealously they proclaimed it or declared it. Verse 37, almost obvious, they were astonished beyond measure. They were astonished. They were besides themselves. They were overcome with amazement. We would say it blew their mind. They, they, just, they couldn't comprehend this. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. Does that remind you of anything? Like in Genesis, everything that he did, he said, it is good. Everything that Jesus did, he did well. He even, now notice, he's done everything well, but he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. As if, I knew that he, I knew that he could do a lot, but he could even make the deaf hear. And people have never spoken, they're speaking. And they're just amazed. Now, I pointed out earlier that here we have the word mute. But back in verse 32, there was a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And that's a different word. The word for mute here in verse 37 basically means um, speechless, cannot speak. And so the mute is someone who cannot speak. But he uses a different word in verse 32. And it's the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. And in fact, it's only used one time in the Old Testament. So it's a rare word. Well, if you had just a moment to think about it, guess where in the Old Testament this word is used one time? Yeah, somebody goes, like, oh, yeah, <laughs> Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So it's only used two times in the Bible, Isaiah 35. And so most think that as Mark, moved by the Holy Spirit, who had probably heard these stories in great detail from Peter and the other apostles, he's making a connection for us with Isaiah 35. The only, other, the only time this word is used in all of the Old Testament is there for the death. And Mark brings that word forward here. This is why Jesus came. This was prophesied, spoken of by the prophets. That Jesus would do these things. But Jesus would do things greater than this. Because beyond these physical things, there are spiritual things. And Jesus will give life to the dead. He will give spiritual ears to hear and spiritual eyes to see and behold, spiritual tongues to speak of God. These are the greater things that He does when He saves us.
Now, there's a lot more here, and I've taken up most of our time. There are other details here that we could have gone into, but the point is what? See Jesus. See Jesus in His sovereign power and authority to do things that no one else can do. And why does Jesus do the miracles? You already know the answer. To authenticate who He is. He's just not a normal person. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one who was long prophesied who would come to redeem us, to save us from our sins. And He performed miracles to authenticate that message. And most of the people hated Him for it. But that's why He does miracles. To prove he is the Messiah. But we also see in this story, as in the other stories, how compassionate Jesus is. There's a tenderness here. This deaf and speechless person who is an outcast in his society. They, they thought the man was, maybe had been judged by God, possessed by some evil. He was ignorant, has no value to society. And yet, look at how tender Jesus is with him full of compassion. And this isn't the only man that Jesus healed that day. There are others. Whenever the crowds gathered, he, he, he would heal and perform miracles by the thousands. But once in a while, these little stories are set aside, pointed out to us, so that we can see Jesus. How tender, compassionate, how kind he is with sinners. Don't you love that about Jesus? I do. And we are promised that Jesus, who is our high priest, he's not beyond being moved and touched by our infirmities, our pains. He knows them. He understands them because he's been here. Even now, right? We have a high priest who can be touched with our infirmities, moved with compassion, and intercede on our behalf to the Father, knowing us, what it's like to be us. I just love that. I'm sure you do as well. It's not about the, the deaf man. It's not about the people, they, who brought him. It's about Jesus, isn't it? And so this morning, that's it. Just think about Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He can do anything he wants and does anything he wants. But he does it with compassion. And tenderness. There were thousands and thousands of people who would never believe in Jesus, and yet he was moved with compassion to help them. And Jesus teaches us, I think, by example, how we should connect with the lost and hurting people in our own society, our own day, our own neighborhoods. People who might be considered outcast or unlovable. They don't match us. They don't fit in. They're, they're poor and dirty. Would you ever take them aside privately and, and help them? Would you be someone who would beg God on their behalf to help them? 
Would you be the good Samaritan? Instead of passing on the other side of the road to go to the man and take care of his needs, pay all of his expenses. Jesus said, that's your neighbor. The person in your path who has a need. And Jesus teaches us to be compassionate, to be kind and tender with those around us who are hurting. May we be more like Jesus. Father, as we bring this message to a close, we're speaking for myself, and I'm sure for everyone here, we're so appreciative of the fact that though you did thousands and thousands of, of deeds and spoke so many words that we, we couldn't even write them all down, yet we have these little vignettes, these little segments in the, in the life of our Savior to show us what you're like. Thank you. And Father, may we have more of the fruit of the Spirit in our own lives. May we demonstrate more clearly the Beatitudes, particularly the blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. May we love, sacrifice ourselves, and love those around us. May we always point people to Jesus. Because you alone can save them. Amen.